Hello and welcome to Two Bye Guys. My name is Jacob Engelberg. And I'm Rob Cohen. And thank you, Jacob, for guest hosting this episode. It's so nice to have you guest hosting. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a it's a real pleasure. And um, it's especially a pleasure to be asked to, to guest host with you this episode, um, because we have a very special guest who will be known to many of your listeners, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. And that is Shiri Eisner. Yes. Well, you are you are the natural choice to host this one because while I've read her book and love her book, Notes on a Bi-Revolution, you brought her up multiple times in your interview last year on Two Bye Guys. And so I know you're very familiar with her work. And especially now she's doing more TV and film criticism sort of in your in your lane. So you did very much better than I would have done with this one. So thank you. <laughs> No, it's with with Shiri's work. It's really the the work that got me into into thinking about this stuff and wanting to actually um, take stuff about bisexuality into the academic work that I was doing. Um, mm. But also, I think for uh, a lot of people that have come across her book, it really kind of galvanizes us into thinking about. Uh, politics through our bisexuality and bisexuality through our politics as well um, in in a way that can feel just quite um, feel it feels like a game changer the first time you you encounter it and I think both of us had had a similar experience with that so um, just to explain to um, people who who Shiri is Shiri Eisner um, is most well known for her book that Rob mentioned it's called Buy Notes for a Bisexual Revolution and it came out in 2013. Shiri is a writer an activist she's based in Tel Aviv in Israel Palestine and her book has been incredibly kind of formative um, for a lot of bi people. Um, And she kind of explains in our interview her rationale behind the book. And what I think she's really successful at doing is to do both a history of bisexual activism and bisexual identity, um, but also to draw almost a kind of map as to what a politics that is informed by bisexuality might look like. Um, And that's the kind of part of her work that I find that I find most exciting. Um, Mm -hmm. How about you, Rob? What was what was your kind of experience of, of the book? What did what did you take from it the first time you read it? Well, it's it's funny because I kind of didn't realize it came out in 2013, but it makes so much sense because so I was born in 1985 and I remember being about to hit my 30th birthday. So it was mm-hmm. 2014 probably. And I was uh-huh. like, shit, I have to uh, address this. I have these thoughts and things I've been repressing. And like, I don't want to turn 30 and still be repressing it. So that was the time mm. when I started like, doing research online and really thinking about this. And I think a little bit later, starting to explore stuff. And so Mm. that was when I read her book. And, um, and I think that something that was so powerful about it for me was that it was connecting it to politics and to like radical progressive things that I was Mm. leaning towards already. But I think that really helped me to embrace it and to come out because 
it wasn't just about me. Like in a way, it was, if it was just about me, it was harder. But if it yeah. was sort of connected to something bigger, then I felt, and and it connected me to this community yeah. that it felt like something I could join and be part of. And I didn't necessarily have to like blaze a trail all by myself. It really like, so I think that's when I read it, that's what it helped do for me. And mm. I don't know that I even realized like that it was a new book then that the right. timing was so perfect because um, right. it was so helpful for me at that time. And I think what you're talking about speaks to the experience of lots of bi people that we don't necessarily become aware, if we become aware at all, that there is such thing as a bi community, that there is such a thing as bi politics, bisexual history. Yeah. Um, and we need kind of these resources to to lay it out because it's not it's not that apparent um, in right. our day-to-day lives. Um, right. And right. and so many of us stay closeted throughout our lives. And a lot of that, I think, is around the, the fear of not having a sense of belonging, of not having a sense of, of community. But the political stuff, I think, really relates to that because what, what Shiri is kind of advocating for in, in her book is a version of politics that's based on community and solidarity um, in ways that kind of individualized politics of kind of everyone's fending for themselves that we get today um, in what might be broadly like discussed as neoliberalism. Um, that's all about kind of fending for yourself. But what what um, Shiri's book is so focused on is about solidarity between people. Um, Mm -hmm. And lots of people who've thought through um, bisexuality in terms of politics have talked about how bisexuality and its position in either in the middle of things or beyond um, a binary category actually has a really nice vantage point from which to see the connections between things that people think are separate. Um, And I think that that really informs the kind of radical politics of of the book, which she clarifies at the beginning of the book, that radical um, is a scary word to lots of people, but literally what it means is like um, at the root. Um, and she's talking about kind of tackling these problems at the root and 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 knowing that we can that we can make political change that isn't about us fitting into some pre-established structure, but changing that structure itself. That it's so interesting that everything you said makes total sense. I won't reiterate it, but I've been thinking all that. But like it is true, I never really connected with gay and lesbian stories. I mean, I connected a Mm. little bit with parts of it, but I didn't Mm. feel like a deep connection to the history of it or the stories people would tell. And and same with like trans identities and gender fluidity, like it Mm. didn't feel like me. However, when I read her book and some others and saw that bi is its own thing and I had that foundation, then Mm. I could sort of make the connections and see what where the similarities were in the crossover. And I think her book, which has those chapters like bi and trans and and other Mm. things, really helps you see how solidarity is possible and why it is sort of fundamental and so important. And that Mm. once you have your own identity, uh, you know, known and established, you really can bridge those gaps and really 
create a queer solid movement. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think one of the kind of main takeaways from from Shuri's book is um, a kind of desire to break down all kinds of binary structures. And just because the one that we're most familiar with is the sexuality binary uh, doesn't mean that that's the only one we need to care about. It's actually uh, one among many binaries that exist socially. um, And our familiarity with how um, inadequate that binary is can really inspire us to tackle the other ones as well. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, Sherry was a brilliant interviewee, easy to talk to. I think we were both a little starstruck. Would you agree? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and also, like, I'm trying this guest host thing, and I'm not going to attend every single guest interview. But right. this one, I was like, how can I not meet Sherry Eisner? <laughs> She's going to be on this show. It, like, I have to go. So. So even though you, Jacob, took the lead and drove the interview, I had to be a little bit of a fanboy in the background, and I attended the interview and <laughs> chimed in a little. And yes, I was I was quite a bit starstruck, uh, but but Sherry was so nice and down to earth and great. Yeah. And, you know, the the stars are just like us. <laughs> uh, I'd I'd say that there was a fanboy in the background and the foreground (laughs) if we sound a bit sycophantic apologies in advance but her work means a lot to us guys (laughs) well without further ado um i think we should we should let everybody hear this this interview we we had with shuri we had so much to talk about we're actually going to be splitting it across two episodes Um, So today you're going to hear the first half where we talk kind of specifically about um, those political ideas. And we also talk about television, which is very interesting. My my area is film, which is definitely not divorced from 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 TV studies these days. But I think Shiri answers a lot of the questions that Rob had for me that I couldn't answer the first time round, which was like Mm. the kind of stuff that... Um, sh- should maybe be be being made right now. Um, what we're lacking. So, without further ado, we've got politics, we've got TV. Um, here's our interview with Sherry Eisner. So today, I have the pleasure of interviewing someone who is such a big name in bisexuality in general (laughs) Um, but anyone who has um, endeavoured to kind of think critically about bisexuality in the past eight years, um, think about what bisexual politics might mean um, think about the connections between bisexuality and leftism, um, will have come into contact with the work of Shiri Eisner um, so it is such a pleasure to introduce um, you today um, and welcome to Two Bye Guys. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So let's start off um, just by asking you uh, what your pronouns are and how you identify. Um, I'm bisexual and genderqueer. I generally use she, her um, and also accept they, them. Great, thank you. And 
Yeah, I mean, the the book that you're known for is by Notes for a Bisexual Revolution, which came out in 2013 with, with Seal Press. And I'm sure many of our listeners will have read your book or encountered it in some way, but I'm sure there'll also be many who haven't. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe give us a, a sense of what the book is about, what inspired it, um, and... And yeah, what your journey with it has has been like since it came out. Um, so basically, this book is the book that I was always looking to read when I was just starting to get more knowledge and reading about bisexuality. I mean, there is a lot of really, really good bisexual writing, but it's kind of hard to come by. A lot of it is academic. Um, activist anthologies um, from the 90s, you know, there are a few of those, but I didn't feel that I could have, like, one place where the whole, like, theory and politics would be presented in a way that is both radical, intersectional, and cohesive. Because, like, you would get a lot of radical perspectives, of course, in some of the anthologies, but it was, you know, isolated. None of them was making, like, a um, full comprehensive argument. So, like, I don't know. It, it was, like, three years or two years I was going around telling everyone that I had a book in my head and one day I was going to write it. After a while, there was one day where, sorry, there was one week when I talked to three people. It was um, my girlfriend at the time, a friend, and my therapist, and all three said, okay, you need to write it. So basically, the book is about the way I view bisexual politics, um, bisexual oppression, and bisexual liberation. I really wanted it to be both intersectional and radical in a way that would like, you know, connect both of these ends which don't meet often enough. Which I think is so weird because they're so complementary. And, you know, I always wanted to read a book that had like, you know, a section of bisexuality and feminism and bisexuality and race, and bisexuality and transness and, you know, all of those things so like i went ahead and and did it and it was it was a (laughs) successful endeavor i think thank you you, because now we we have this this book which is a brilliant guide and a starting point for um people who are interested in learning about these histories these ways of thinking um and i know certainly for me when i came across this i that kind of convinced me to research even further, look into some of those texts that you're citing, um, but also know what to work towards in terms of bisexual politics today. I'm I'm wondering, Rob, for for you, when when did you encounter um, the book, and what was your experience with it? I mean, I like there was a point in my journey where like I started to actually acknowledge my feelings of maybe being bisexual 
And I then like started reading like everything I could find and everything I could get my hands on. And like I read a ton and a couple of things just made everything kind of make sense and made me realize, oh, this isn't like just about I have same sex attractions. It's like about my politics and my identity and like how I see the world in a worldview. And it was your book that really helped me see that. Um, Thank you. And I'm also I'm also so inspired that you were just like, I wanted to read a book like this. So I wrote it. I mean, that's essentially this podcast is like, I wanted to listen to stories of by men and like hear more about this and I couldn't find it. So so Alex and I were like, okay, let's just do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's also like really important politically that, you know, we create our own texts and we write our own stories and um, put words to our life experience. For sure. And and you mentioned, Rob, the kind of desire for by guys to kind of engage with that kind of specific experience. Um, and the interesting thing about your book is it's some of the most kind of compelling ideas on male bisexuality um, that, that I've heard, which manages to, it manages to explore it without falling into some of the essentially misogynistic trappings that that can sometimes um, fall into. Um, and the the thing that I like that, that you talk about is that the kind of dominant idea of masculinity is associated with singularity um, in oneness. Um, and the thing about bisexuality is it's an affirmation of a kind of multiplicity, um, a potential for multiplicity. And, and there is something in that um, where we can perhaps rethink modes of, of masculinity. So I basically just wanted to give you an opportunity to explore those ideas a little bit a little bit more with us um, to, to think what a bisexual masculinity might look like and and its relation to, to feminism and the feminist project more more broadly. Yeah, I think you know a lot of the times or, Maybe less so recently, um, but a lot of the times writing about bi men and discourse about my bi men were focusing on, you know, comparisons to bi women, like comparisons to bi women's visibility. Um, a lot of the time there would be like a sort of an accusation between the lines, like why are bi women leading the movement? Um, where are all the bi men uh, with the insinuation that bi women were silencing the men? I have been seeing less of that recently, I'm glad to say, which is very nice. Thinking about men and bisexuality, I think bisexuality gives men a really great opportunity to step aside from masculinity as a dominant structure. Like it gives a way to reevaluate the construction of what masculinity is and the requirements of society for men. And that just opens up a lot of options. Because, like, 
I, I feel men are often trapped in very rigid structures that, you know, society kind of locks them in. And, and of course, you know, all of these um, rigid structures are meant to, you know, qualify men to their role as oppressors, but that also very much harms men. It requires them to mutilate a lot of emotional part of parts of themselves and behavioral parts of themselves in order to you know to fit the role and i think you know it's not just um that bisexuality is outside dominant masculinity it's also the fact that bi people in general can often experience what it's like to be at the bottom of the hierarchy, for example, in LGBT communities, or what it's like to, to be erased from culture. And I think that opens up also a lot of opportunity for solidarity with other groups and for a broader political understanding. Absolutely. And I think it's something that is, is very different to the kind of... Um, the kind of politics that is like bi men can be just as masculine as straight men or the kind of stuff that's like you you spoke about those kind of accusations about kind of bi women leading the movement another one tends to be why are bi women um accepted um and and by men not um and you um make a very kind of clear point in in your book that um, because something is palatable to patriarchy, a very specific kind of image of female bisexuality is palatable to patriarchy, that is not acceptance. <laughs> um, and to, to have that kind of um, understanding that actually engaging with a kind of feminist critique makes for a more holistic understanding of the bigger picture, I think is, is so important. Yeah. And and I think that's also like part of the opportunity to step aside from dominant masculinity is, you know, to be in solidarity with bi women um, and with bi trans and non-binary people. Because like you said, it's it's not actually acceptance. The you know, the heightened visibility of bi women in the media hinges on fetishization and you know, which which causes real world consequences in the form of sexual violence which you know statistically 75 percent of bi women have survived so like you know I, I think it gives like an opportunity to look at all of these intersections and to make the connections absolutely and i think having attention to those intersections is what makes your work so so crucial today um because it's not trying to separate bisexuality out from those things it's seeing things through and through bisexuality but seeing the way that that intersects with other forms of identity but also social power in the real world um which is is something that um is part of a kind of leftist tradition of thinking thinking through identity not as some abstract um thing that has no effect on the world but something that's incredibly important in in terms of how we experience the world how vulnerable we are in the world uh how much power we have in the world so yeah 
I'm, I'm, so I'm wondering about the visibility um, thing that, that we touched upon. I know that um, you've been doing some research into bisexuality in television, um, and I'm sure a lot of those questions around bisexuality and representation come up there. And I wanted to ask you, just as a kind of starting point, how you kind of set out to approach questions of of visibility and representation, um, because it's some it, they're words that we hear hear a lot about, um, but people can can use them in different ways to to mean different things. So, so what what do those terms mean to you? Kind of bisexual visibility, bisexual representation. Uh, it's complicated, actually, because I think the concept of bisexual visibility is definitely not enough. I mean, it is literally the bare minimum and the fact that it's such a buzzword and such a you know long (laughs) you know long time request demand um from the bi community to you know the media to you know to just show us to just acknowledge that we exist is is just you know we deserve so much more than that. And, you know, I, I, I think about myself, like, in before I started, like, thinking about this more seriously. And I used to see, you know, by representation in the media and get so excited that it was bisexual that I didn't even notice how negative the representation was. <laughs> Like right, how, right. <laughs> you know, like, oh, my God, there's a person who's bi. Um, they're represented really, really horribly, but oh, my God, they showed it. <laughs> yeah. So, like, the concept of visibility is is very limiting, but also the concept of, uh, you know, quote, unquote, accurate representation which I think a lot of the time is a euphemism for respectability. Um, Jacob, you wrote about that. And <laughs> yeah, it was really weird. Yeah, reading yeah. reading your article was like reading the introduction uh, chapter to my thesis, which I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> like... I mean, it would make sense because you kind of sparked my interest in this stuff. So. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's about the the assumption that there is an objective and unified reality to all bi people that we all share the same characteristics and the same behavior and that behavior has to be respectable. And you know, and representing that is the only kind of acceptable bi representation. And and I think, you know, that kind of view really centers um, non-bi people because, you know, it, it focuses on the question, what will people think about us? And not, you know, where can we see ourselves? I don't see myself in respectable bi characters. I don't see yeah. myself in many bi characters, actually, that I've seen. But the few I have, it you know, it's often been the villains or the weirdos or, you know, those on, on the margins. And, you know, there there's a thing where, you know, 
we always have to read ourselves into the margins. It's a very, I think it's a very quintessential by experience that like we have to read into things in order to find ourselves in a way that, you know, and it's an experience that repeats itself throughout our lives. We have to like forge our own path. I think in that in that sense, it's kind of an insight that it gives us the kind of um, the difficulty in seeing bisexuality in cultural products kind of can give us an insight into the kind of falsity of the claim for for representing sexuality in the first place as well um that the idea that any sexuality could could be represented is is something that i think is a flawed premise as well absolutely um, and the and the other thing that i was i was thinking about is the kind of in the, in these conversations around visibility and and representation often like I a hundred percent get the kind of rush that I definitely felt growing up and can still feel today when a character calls themselves by um in something, but at the same time, as someone with a background in in film studies, I think that is such a kind of limiting way to think about what sexuality is on screen if it's down to a character saying a word the the kind of early queer film theorists were were like invested in some really straight films but they were but they what they loved was reading them against the grain seeing in this villain um something that they felt inside of them reading this glance between two characters in in a perverse kind of way and i i feel like there's actually even though that is kind of the product of kind of social marginalization there can be a great pleasure in that kind of reading against the grain um that we can do as queer people and that's not necessarily something that i want to let go of yeah nor should we but i mean you know given broad culture of sexual erasure i don't think you know i don't think we're going to have much problem with sticking to it you know but I I actually like the characters say the word bisexual. It's only been happening over the past five or six years. And and that's amazing. A few years back, um, it was uh, Grey's Anatomy, the first time that a character said, I am bisexual in a prime time television series without saying I'm not first or watering it down later. And, you know, that that has its limitations. I, you know, I don't think that should be like the extent of our hopes and um, demands from media. But, you know, it, it still, it makes me happy. I think, you know, it's, it's a good thing to, to be able, you know, to, to speak the unspoken and the unspeakable. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, like, and, and like, I, I understand too that that's the bare minimum in representation, like, to have bi characters that exist and, like, we deserve so much more. But it's even been so hard to do that, like, the Grey's Anatomy thing. I can't imagine how hard it was because I worked at Law and Order SVU on, on NBC. And, like, when I was first starting there and I was not out, 
there was a character who was married to a woman with kids and he would go out at night secretly to, to have gay sex. And like that character was gay. There was never even a, a discussion in the writer's room. Could he be bi? He was just gay. So even just that bare minimum is like for a, for a network primetime thing is difficult, but hopefully getting a little better. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, a lot of media, especially TV shows, are only now beginning to try and find the language with which to represent bisexuality. Because, and I mean, represent even like, you know, down to the, um, you know, cinematography and construction of how it's represented. Because so many years, um, bisexuality has been impossible or incomprehensible within, you know, media texts like. A thought that I had while I was writing um, the introduction to my thesis was that the general rule for representing bisexuality was that it had to comply with Plato's three unities, the unity of time, the unity of place, and the unity of plot. So, like, a person can't be bisexual if they're not, uh, you know, involved with people of quote-unquote, both genders, because it's always so reductive, at the same time, in the same place, and within the same narrative arc. And and I think we're starting to see some representation that takes that, you know, that complicates that a little bit and makes uh, bisexuality comprehensible even outside of those three unities which is, you know, it's great. I, I really hope they continue to do that and that we see a lot of good things. And thinking about those kind of constraints that can be on by representation, I, I pulled out a quote from Maria Sanfilippo, um, who is a bisexual film and TV scholar. Um, and for her, television is a, a format that maybe offers ways of telling bisexuality in a more complex fashion. Um, So the quote from her that I want to share is, the narrative open-endedness and expanded timeframe that characterize serial television drama offer a particularly promising site for mounting long-range and multifaceted explorations into bisexual characters, identities, and experiences. Do you do you agree with with Filippo there, Sherry? The the kind of the longer kind of serial structure of of television can kind of open up possibilities for more complex stories um, that are more suited to bisexuality? I I think it opens more opportunities for the viewers to read it as bisexual. I mean, I'm not sure I would give, you know, uh, a lot of media the credit of, of, you know, intentionally leaving it open-ended and, you know, open to interpretation and multiplicity. Um, I think that would be, you know, it, it's a spectatorship. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a practice that we engage in uh, while reading the text actively and often against the grain. 
Um, and there are so mm. many examples mm. for that. You know, the quintessential example is uh, Willow from Buffy. Right, right. And, you know, we can definitely read her as bisexual, but it wasn't intended to be like that by the text. So I, don't, I do think, uh, you know, the format of television series can give more room to that kind of reading. Um, mm-hmm. But that reading is ours and we get the credit for that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't necessarily see that as kind of less, less valuable or I, I have a real kind of affinity with um, the idea of spectators creating meaning. Um, and I think the kind mm-hmm. of flip side of that can sometimes be a very narrow um, set of expectations for representations that don't allow people to engage with film or television in a more creative way, that we don't need someone to tell us, yes, you can call this character by. Um, we can just we can just feel these things. We can we can read into in in a similar way that people don't tend to watch films made before the 90s when looking for like queer representation when there is so much there to to unpack and even in the early decades of of cinema in the early 1900s i mean there's there's a lot there that lends itself to to these questions um but it involves approaching them a little bit differently as well yeah, yeah. definitely what what series have you been looking at in particular and and are there any series that you wish more people had seen okay those are two very different questions because oh yeah <laughs> two very different answers um i i've uh i've i've actually been uh watching a lot of like um series with explicit bioprezentation lately so i watched um i just finished watching hacks um Me too. which is um it's a comedy show by HBO um, focusing on a young comedy writer who starts working um, with an aging uh, stand-up comedian. And uh, the character of the writer is bisexual, and she says it, which is great. She, she, says, she also says monosexist. And oh, like, wow. that's the first time I've heard that on television. That was exciting. Wow. Um, I also watched uh, Trigonometry, uh, which is a series, I think, uh, produced by the BBC, maybe. It was, it was something from the UK, anyway, about a triad focuses on a um, young woman who comes to live with a young couple. Um, and they fall in love and form a relationship, mm-hmm. which was a very, very promising premise. Um, but I found it kind of disappointing in terms of, I've actually been thinking about this a lot, and maybe I'll write about it someday, about how um, the convention uh, for representation of bisexual triads is that it can never work, that it's impossible. That has to, to be like undone in every second that it's represented, mm. Um, mm-hmm. which bothers me. I also watched um, uh, Feel Good, which is um, oh, yeah. 
um, a show by May Martin, who's also starring it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two seasons. The first actually kind of like is kind of about bisexuality without ever acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. And in the second season, they say bisexual twice in one episode or in two. And I was like, oh, my God, that's unprecedented. Mm. Um, Maybe they were reading your tweets after the first season. <laughs> <laughs> Unlikely I watched both of them in one go. <laughs> but... um. But but yeah, I I think you know I I have a lot of thoughts about these texts, and and they're kind of complex because every representation has its limitations, and you know and and like I think you know I I have never in my life seen you know three whole series. Was that three or four that I just talked about? It was three. Okay, so I also recently started watching the bisexual by oh, yeah. um Desiree Yeah, Desiree. yeah. I'm only um I I'm only at the second episode now, so I'm not sure yet what I think about it. But but I've I have been seeing a really strong tendency to depoliticize bisexuality within those representations. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, representing named um, explicit bisexuality has opened a lot of possibilities and it definitely is a new thing that I'm happy to see. But also we all, you know, we always have to maintain our critical lens and practice so we don't, you know, we should always ask for what we deserve and not, you know, just live with the scraps. And I think right now it's kind of like scraps. I want, you know, I want richness. Mm-hmm. Can I ask what, is that related to what you mean by the, these shows depoliticizing bisexuality? Like what, um, what would it really look like to have a politicized version of bi-ness in, in TV? That is a really good I'll, question. I'll do whatever whatever you tell me. I'll I'll work on it on my in my pilot. <laughs> <laughs> Can you two be my technical advisors for my series when it goes on? <laughs> no, I'm like yeah. I'm I'm just curious. Like what what makes you say that about those shows that they're depoliticizing it? I'm not exactly sure. Um, what you mean. By depoliticizing, I mean they. I felt they were trying to disconnect bisexuality from social context for example most of those shows featured bisexuality without acknowledging the existence of biphobia which you know it it completely detaches bisexual experience from you know from the very concept of what it means and you know, and and that is a very very common trope in the media. I have never seen biphobia represented as biphobia. Bisexuality e- either you know comes just like as a you know the disembodied notion of human sexuality or whatever, or you know disconnected from um, oppression and and social implications. Or biphobia is represented as truth, 
Right. So, right. you know, you get characters saying like really, really terribly biphobic things and, and, you know, the way they're represented is, oh, wow, that is so true. They're really calling this person out. Yeah. Um, so like um, these shows, I don't think we're doing the, you know, biphobia as truth thing, but they were definitely, you know, representing bisexuality only as, um, you know, a form of attraction and not as an experience in the world. That makes so much sense because I see all these shows like the conflicts for the bi person usually come from the fact that they're dating a man and a woman at the same time, right? And for me, most of the conflicts in my experience as a bi person are people throwing biphobia at me or internalized homophobia. And and you're right, that's that's not where the conflict usually comes from on these shows. Yeah. Or, you know, there there is a lot of internal conflict that we experience as well, but that is, you know, also affected and, and often constructed by what society teaches us about, you know, what's possible or impossible for us. Right. Yeah, totally. And and you know, characters are never shown dealing with that. It's just like, oh, I just love people, you know, yeah, as if it yeah. has no, you know, it's not rooted in uh, lived experience. Right. As if it's easy to get to that point. Like, I know people that say that. I, yeah, I, I love all people. But like, it takes some work to get yeah. there and get through some biphobia. Yeah. yeah and, and what obstacles do you do you come up against if you want to live like that? That's a... That's an important question as well. Yeah. Um, my memory of it is not great, but around a year ago, I discovered a British TV show from 2001 called Bob and Rose. And it's not the best TV show um, ever, but the whole premise of it is a gay identified man kind of falls for his his female friend um and this kind of leads to a an identity crisis of sorts um and it was just very interesting to to look at as something from uh what feels like a a different time in terms of sexual politics um than today but that does kind of engage critically somewhat with biphobia within the gay community but also the necessity of um, kind of queer community spaces for anyone who's queer. Um, so yeah, that was that was just a, a find of mine that I wanted to mention. <laughs> I mean, Rob, do do you have any kind of TV moments um, that kind of meant a lot to you in terms of bisexuality? It's funny, like the the hearing the word "bi" for the first time on network TV. Really, like I didn't expect it to affect me the way that it did. But but it was on Brooklyn Nine-Nine a few years ago, which is even more complicated because it's a show about policing that's kind of could be problematic because all the cops are the heroes, which they're now dealing with on the current season, which is also interesting. But, but when Rosa came out and said, I'm bisexual, I started crying. Like I didn't expect it. She said the word. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, and, and I thought they did a pretty good job with that storyline as far as a network 
sitcom can do. Um, it felt pretty real, but yeah, like, like I, I also know what you mean about, you know, reading stuff into things that are not explicit or like connecting with those characters. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Although I, although I also loved the hacks representation too, because it was part of the story, but it wasn't where all the conflicts came from, but it just made so much sense to me that a character like that, especially with like her, her kind of progressive attitudes and, and radical politics, like with her comedy and the mission she had, I identified with her a lot. And so it made sense. And I also liked that she wasn't perfect. And there were things she did that I was like, Oh, fuck, don't, don't do that. That's, that's messy. Yeah, yeah, I I really enjoy the the new trope of the messy bisexual. I think you <laughs> yeah. know it's 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 very human. It's very humanizing, and and it allows us to to acknowledge that you know, we're not always palatable, but you know we still deserve recognition, liberation, compassion to be you know to be seen as human. And, and also what I liked about Hacks was um, the fact that, um, you know, the, the main character was both bisexual and humanized and her bisexuality played part in her arc because that's not something I've really seen so far. Usually in recent years, uh, bi characters, bisexuality <laughs> is... Um, matched with their level of, uh, you know, um, moral character. <laughs> it's like if they're a villain, you better believe you will see a lot of bisexuality there and it will be very prominently displayed as part of their villainy. If the character <laughs> is morally gray, likewise, you know, they're, they're going to show you their bisexuality to, to tell you that, you know, they can't necessarily be trusted. Um, and if the character is humanized and represented as, you know, someone of a protagonist or a positive character, then suddenly their bisexuality doesn't matter. They're bisexual, but we're not going to see that because it's only part of their personality and it doesn't have to be the center of their lives. And like, it's it's not part of their lives at all, the way you're showing it. And, you know, and, and what I liked about Hacks was that it it totally did, did something different there. The, you know, her bisexuality was absolutely part of the plot things happened that directly related to that and she was humanized at the same time that was great right Right. it was part of it but it wasn't like will she end up with a man or a woman like that wasn't the story (laughs) but it was like still yeah i mean i still want to see specifically bisexual stories because you know a lot of the time people say um you know that they want to see normalized bisexual characters you know characters whose bisexuality isn't the focus of the plot and they're they're just like uh, basing this argument on a very erroneous presumption because the the convention for the representation of gay and trans people was indeed 
to focus the plot on you know the tragedy of their existence the tragedy of their homosexuality or transness and you know and, and um pathologization and villainization uh, through direct storytelling of their sexuality and gender but bisexuality was never represented through that convention we have never seen stories that focused on uh you know the tragedy of bisexuality because bisexuality was never perceived as as a cohesive inherent quality the way that homosexuality or transness are perceived bisexuality is a always been perceived as um, transient, ephemeral, vague, not really existing except for, you know, time, place, narrative arc. So I, I do definitely want to see specifically bisexual stories about, you know, mm-hmm. being a bisexual person in the world and how that specifically plays out in many ways i I think uh the bisexual probably does that but i'm Mm -hmm. i'm not far enough to to really know there i think the bisexual does it it's i i liked it in that it felt very real and like it was her experience or something some version of her experience so it didn't encompass every bi it was like one bi experience but it felt very real and authentic to her and i think i agree with like we can do both things at the same time. Like we can normalize bi people and bisexuality and also tell stories about the struggles of, of coming to terms with that or coming out or whatever. And like Mm. so many people who listen to this podcast have written into us about like bi men who are married to women is a big demographic on this show. And a lot of them are, have come out to their wives after they got married or are not out to their wives or like, or it's been, it was an issue before and now it's not. And like, you know, that's what I'm writing pilot about that. Like, those are the kind of stories I think we haven't seen and we can normalize and humanize those characters while at the same time showing that struggle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I wanted to mention a series that I would want more people to watch. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's Penny Dreadful. Do you know it? I've heard of it, but yeah. I haven't seen it. Oh my god, you really have to! Um, it's and and I'm talking about like the the first series because there was a second, um, Penny Dreadful City of Angels, which was not at all the same. Um, though its representation of bisexuality, I um, am amused and disappointed and delighted to say remained the same bisexuality as a marker of evil. So the well, the, think- uh, <laughs> the first series, Penny Dreadful, is um, it's gothic horror in like the best way possible. It is so well written and so well acted. Um, also very, very white, I should say, but, you know, but very Victorian <laughs> in its, you know, both in its setting and its aesthetics. There is so much bisexuality, um, both explicit and to read into. Um, and, and I do love that it's a marker of evil within that show. It's, you know, yeah. it's, it's a marker of, um, 
you know, all the demonic powers, the lurking to, you know, to, to go and destroy humanity. I, I just, I fucking love it. I love it. Because, yeah, yeah, I, I, yes, I want to destroy the world. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's kind of a a very central argument for, for, for your work is not to deny those bad stereotypes on in inverted commas, um, but to see in those the threat that we can pose the status quo. Um, yeah, it's so that, powerful. And that's I want to have that either. power. We yeah. do have that power. That's Absolutely. why we're being cast as as you know those villainous, demonic, destructive beings. Mm. And, and no. like, yeah, that is amazing. It makes me happy. So that was the first half of our interview with Shiri Eisner. But worry not, there is plenty more to come uh, in our next episode where we will be touching on some slightly uh, different subjects. We will uh, be talking more about identity um, and how that intersects with politics. Uh, Shiri, Rob, and I are all Jewish people, and um, we go into basically how our Jewishness and our bisexuality might interact with one another, how they have historically in our lives and how they might inform our politics. And we get a particularly interesting insight into Shiri's work as an anti-Zionist activist uh, living in the state of Israel, um, which is fascinating and something that I that we don't often hear about so um so please do tune in next time for the second half of our interview with shiri eisner i'll see you then two by guys is edited and produced by me rob cohen and it was created by me and alex boyd our music is by ross mincer our logo art is by caitlin weinman and we are supported by the gotham formerly ifp thanks for listening to two by guys 